This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver wants to eradicate AIDS in the city by 2030. And to achieve that, officials must take some important steps in the new year. First, get people with HIV who've fallen out of treatment back into care. And second, continue to fight stigma. In a few minutes, we'll get an update on the city's plan, which is just over a year old. First, a woman who has lived with HIV most of her life. Her account comes to us from Story Center, a nonprofit that helps people tell their stories. Here is Corlin Jones of Denver. I remember being in the hospital after an overdose and being tested for HIV. The doctors told me they needed to test me because I was an IV drug user. A couple of months later, I sat at my parents' kitchen table in San Jose, and the phone rang. My dad picked it up and handed it to me. The doctor said I was tested positive for the HIV virus. I was shocked. I was 26 years old, and I had an 8-year-old son. I couldn't be HIV positive because in 1985, we thought it was a gay male disease. It was a death sentence. The news showed stories of people killing people with HIV, and some even thought that HIV-positive people needed to be moved onto an island. I said to my dad, I have HIV. I'm dying. My first thought was that I would never be a grandma. Today I'm 56 and my son is 39. He's lived his whole life knowing I was positive. We do the AIDS walk together. Once his family and his whole baseball team and their families walked with me, even the dog went. I've had a very meaningful relationship with my boyfriend of eight years. He knew I was HIV positive, and he still pursued me. He kept asking me if I wanted to go to dinner, and for a month I turned him down, saying not tonight. Finally, when I invited him over to my house, he said, jokingly, no, not tonight. We were together for eight years. He was HIV negative. He was on his way to my house one night and got in a car accident. He never made it out of the hospital. I've lived a full life with good friends who love me, a dog who's great companion, and a big old baby. And I am a grandma. This will not kill me. I am stronger than HIV. Corlin Jones of Denver. Her story is part of a larger project called Staying Positive. It features women living with HIV AIDS, and it comes from a nonprofit called Story Center. More of their work at CPRnews.org. Now for an update on Denver's plan to end AIDS in the city. I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Rowan. She's Associate Director of HIV and Viral Hepatitis Prevention at Denver Public Health. And welcome back to the program. Thank you. One of your goals in the new year is to find people with HIV who have stopped getting treatment and then get them back into care. Why do people drop out of treatment? There's a lot of reasons people drop out of treatment. It can be hard to take a pill every day to make appointments, to come in for labs. People may have changes in their jobs, changes in their living situation. Moving is pretty disruptive and challenging. I think some, for some people, addiction is a, a challenge. Um, th- there's really changes in insurance can be hugely disruptive or also in the AIDS drug assistance program can be challenging as well. So there's really a lot of a variety of reasons, and we're hoping to understand them better as we reach out to people who've been out of care. And help us understand the fundamental sort of belief behind that. If you bring people back into care and manage their HIV, 
then what? Why is that key to fighting uh, HIV and AIDS eventually? Well, we know that, especially in the Denver metro, folks who are in care are generally on medications. And the medications are incredibly powerful at suppressing the virus. When people have suppressed virus, they don't actually get any, they don't get sick. So we don't see progression to AIDS. We don't see um, the major immunologic and cardiovascular complications that HIV can cause. So we really want to keep people in care, hence on medication. And they don't spread the disease as readily. Exactly. We know now from multiple studies that when people are on medications and their virus is suppressed in their blood, they don't transmit to other people. Okay. It's one thing to say we want to bring people back into the fold, but how do you identify folks who have fallen out of care? That seems to be, in a way, identifying the invisible. Yeah, it's hard to know what you don't know. We do have some data on um, folks who haven't had a visit in the last 12 months, and that's sort of what we've said is our cutoff for being out of care. So we use that data then to you know check in, check in with the person's last clinical provider, and then give them a call. Oh. There are lots of people moving to Colorado. Is it possible that folks coming in may be HIV positive and are not in care? Absolutely. I mean, we definitely try to use our excellent linkage to care resources to help people when they first move into Colorado to find a provider, to get insurance, to get any assistance they need, and then to find the provider, you know, that's conveniently located and and who will work well with them. So those folks are somehow identified when they come in? Uh, How would you know who they are? We don't have any way to know when someone just moves to the state. Uh, We try to make our services readily um, accessible. So we're online, we have media campaigns through the health department, through, you know, any testing site, any other provider that they might seek. And I think most people who know that they're living with HIV feel that it's very important to find a provider right away. Okay, so to the larger aspect of eliminating AIDS in Denver, uh, the city signed on to what's known as the 90-90-90 initiative. What is it, and how is it the path to eradicating AIDS? 90-90-90 is a global initiative with the goal of ending AIDS as a public health threat by 2030. It's a city-based initiative, and we've sort of um, looked at it as the Denver Metro because we really are uh, a cohesive unit here. This has really f- expanded beyond just the D- Denver city county. I, we it has people move between you know especially the five county area five to seven county Denver Metro area. So it started uh, in Paris with a handful of cities that signed on to the same set of goals, and then they expanded worldwide. And now there are over sixty cities who've committed to these same set of goals. And what do the ninety ninety nineties refer to? So 90-90-90 refers to um, the 90-90-90 and zero, really. So 90% of people who are living with HIV have tested and are aware of their status. Okay. And then 90% of people who are aware of their status are on meds. As you said, which is so important. Exactly. And then of those who are on meds, 90% of people are virally suppressed. That means they've got complete control of the virus. It's undetectable in their blood. And if you can achieve those levels, 90, 90, 90, uh, you have largely said goodbye to AIDS. Is that what you're saying? Actually, 90, 90, 90 is the short-term goal for 2020. Okay. We hope to go up to 95, 95, 95, and zero stigma by 2030. At that point, we'll have nearly 90% of people living with HIV 
virally suppressed. So very, very few people who haven't attained complete control of the virus and very few people who can transmit the virus to others. I'm glad you mentioned stigma because that's another part of the fight into 2017. Why is fighting stigma key to achieving this goal? It's not an accessory no, as you see it. absolutely fundamental. Um, really, I don't know that we can achieve the goal of 95, 95, 95, of ending AIDS as a public health threat, ending the AIDS epidemic without addressing stigma. Stigma prevents people from testing. They may feel um, embarrassed to ask for a test because they're afraid of what people will think of them. Um, Stigma can also prevent people from coming to care, going to their doctor's appointments, taking their medications, talking to their family, living openly um, and comfortably and and, and in a healthy way. It's so interesting. I think stigma is based on the idea that it is still highly contractable, HIV, and that it's a death sentence, right? That's, that is that is the underpinning, certainly of people who were around for the AIDS crisis, say, of the 80s and early 90s, don't you think? How does that square with the reality of what it is to, say, date someone who has HIV? Well, it's diametrically opposed to the reality. Those are two uh, complete uh, falsities that are unfortunately still, um, I I think that they're still out there, but most educated people know that it's not highly contagious, Um, particularly for people who are on meds. It's really not contagious. And, uh, and absolutely, it's, it's not even close to a death sentence. It's really a chronic condition that people live with and manage. I want to talk to you just a bit about PrEP. So this is pre-exposure prophylaxis. This is something that people take who are negative and uh, do so in hopes of remaining negative. How important is PrEP in getting to 95, 95, 95 eventually? PrEP really affects that first 95 goal. So we want everyone who's living with HIV to know their status. We also want to keep people who are negative negative. As you said, um, PrEP is a prevention pill that if taken daily is over 95, 92 to 95% effective at preventing um, HIV acquisition, even, you know, in the midst of a high risk exposure. So we really think that PrEP is the key is is one of it's a tool in the toolbox that will help people to not get HIV, in addition to getting folks who are positive in care and on meds, and then the risk is sort of um, dramatically decreased from two angles. And another thing, going back to stigma, I think PrEP has been really helpful at decreasing stigma about HIV in many ways because it encourages frequent testing and it encourages people to talk about HIV. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's Dr. Sarah Rowan. She's Associate Director of HIV and Viral Hepatitis Prevention at Denver Public Health. She updated us on Metro Denver's plan to end AIDS by 2030. After a break, we dissect a police stop of a black citizen by a white officer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Blacks in Colorado are arrested at a much higher rate than whites, according to new numbers. The data from the State Department of Public Safety show the arrest rate for blacks is nearly three times higher here. Well, earlier this year, we brought you the anatomy of a police stop, and it generated a lot of listener response. Here in the last week of 2016, another chance to hear it. 
This particular police encounter involved an Arapahoe County Sheriff's deputy who's white and an African-American civilian. Here is some of the 911 call that sparked the interaction on the morning of September 20th, a Tuesday. Arapahoe 911, what's the location of your emergency? Uh, I just, well, I'm driving right now, but there was a, um, I just got an I-25 going southbound from Dry Creek, and just by the RGB parking right there was a black, um, he was a black man, black dress, carrying a, I assume a rifle. Okay. I don't know if it's nothing or if he's going somewhere to, to do something, you know what I mean? You just don't see guys carrying rifles around anymore like that, you know? So someone called in to report a black man with a rifle. This is near a convenience store in the Denver Tech Center. Arapahoe County Sheriff's Deputy Tom Finley picks up the story. I was just at 7-Eleven taking a short little break in my shift when I heard the alert tone, which is kind of a loud tone that they play over the radio for emergency calls to get everyone's attention. So I heard the alert tone, and then they aired a person with, a rifle at I-25 and Dry Creek. And I'm like, well, gee, I'm kind of at I-25 and Dry Creek right now. So, you know, I kept listening to the call and got the description of the person, which from the 911 call was a black male wearing black clothing, carrying a rifle of some sort. Um, I was in an unmarked police car sitting at the gas pumps, and I saw that person kind of walking diagonal through the 7-Eleven parking lot. And I'm like, that might be the person that, you know, we're getting the call about. I exited my patrol car, shouted, you know, I believe I shouted, sir, drop the rifle. To be clear, you can carry a rifle in Colorado, correct? That act in and of itself is not illegal. That is correct. So why why do you think there was the, the dispatch? I think it's not a common thing to see. And so whether or not it had turned out to be a criminal violation or not, you know, we would determine when we got there. But I think the person that saw it was alarmed by what they saw. The man carrying what appeared to be a rifle wasn't a man at all. It was a woman. And you might recognize her voice. This is Colorado Public Radio News. I'm Joanne Allen. Yes, it was our All Things Considered host, Joanne Allen. But she wasn't carrying a gun. Here's her side of the story. I heard someone say, sir, drop the rifle. And I slowly turned through the golf clubs away from my body and held out my arms and said, they're golf clubs, they're golf clubs. The deputy slowly approached me and with his hand on his gun, prepared, as you might expect, slowly approached me, but when he saw it was golf clubs, he took his hand off his gun. Uh, I think his exact words were, I apologize for challenging you. When we get a call like this, we have to respond. You know, as a skeptical reporter, I was really amazed at how he handled the situation. I was stunned. My heart was racing. I, I didn't quite know what to do next, I totally understood why I was stopped. Because if you see the clubs... And we have a photo at cprnews.org so you can see what this this club in its case looks like. It looks like a gun. I can totally see that. Deputy, do you remember 
at least reaching for your gun. Yes, I do remember uh, that I had my hand on my gun. And is that part of your training, that in a situation that could escalate, you do that? Yes, I needed to be prepared in case she did have a rifle and was planning to do bad things with it. And yet, as Joanne tells the story, you were really very calm. Uh, it wasn't aggressive or something like that. To take us into your mind. Um, yeah, that's what I want to know. What were you? What were you feeling? You were approaching someone who might have a rifle. You know, I. That's one of the things we train too is to be calm in crisis situations because if you're out of control yourself, you're going to do more harm than good. We do a lot of you know, shoot, don't shoot type of training at the range where, you know, they train the calm into you, basically. Have you been in a situation like this before? I don't think specifically like this one, but I have dealt with armed subjects before. I mean, you definitely fall back on the training when you get into stressful situations. And how stressed were you? I don't recall being specifically stressed during the incident. I'm sure that I was. But afterwards, I definitely remember having the adrenaline dump and everything like that afterwards. What's an adrenaline dump? Well, so after, you know, a stressful situation, during the situation, you have adrenaline that actually helps you function better. But then after the situation, the adrenaline wears off and your heart races and you start getting sweaty. Even sometimes your fingers will, you know, feel a little shaky. I felt something similar to what you felt. It wasn't until after the event was over and after I'd gotten to work here at CPR that I felt nerves and that I thought back on the actual scene several times in my mind's eye. And as the day wore on and by 6 o'clock that evening, I was really almost not quite a wreck, but I was closer to being a wreck than I had been during our actual encounter. And after the fact, you realize, oh, my goodness, this really could have gone badly. I wonder if that's it for both of you, is that after the situation, you have the room to imagine how differently it could have turned out. I definitely was thinking that. Were you thinking that? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that, too. I was thinking of it in the context of what had just happened the Friday before in Tulsa, the shooting there, because you and I encountered each other the following Tuesday. And before knowing about the shooting in Charlotte, that was the very day that the shooting in Charlotte happened. And this is a white officers shooting black civilians. Right, right. But I never, I never felt a real threat from you. But thinking back later, I felt nervous about it. And Deputy, was that on your mind too, the, the events in this country? In the moment, no. I don't think you can think about stuff like that because... You don't want to second-guess yourself in the moment. Joanne? While I was standing there with my arms out, I did think about it. And I thought, oh, is this going to happen to me in Centennial, Colorado? What is this? Is this going to happen to Am me? Am I going to be shot by a police officer? And I have always been taught to obey whatever an officer tells you to do. And so, you know, I was trying to be as calm as possible and did exactly what he said. Now, if you had been aggressive with me, I don't know what I would have thought or felt or done. But as a black person, I was definitely thinking about the shootings that have happened in this country recently. Joanne, you say you were taught 
uh, about how to interact with police. Can you just say more about that? Well, I was taught by my parents. And I think a lot of black kids especially know that they should, no matter what the officer is telling you to do, you should do it. The black community will call on the police when we need them. You know, it's not like the police were always the enemy. But if you are individually stopped by one, then you should be extra careful to do what they tell you to do. I did want to ask the officer the line, I apologize for challenging you. Is that something that you say or is it something you were taught in your training to say? Um, I, I wasn't taught that. And I honestly don't know if I've ever even said it before. Seriously? Seriously. Because when you said it, I thought it was, it, I thought now this guy's been trained well. But it was I think you. It was, I think it was more, it went from being a black man with a gun to being a black woman with golf clubs. And so I was almost feeling bad about having shouted at you. You ever going to carry those golf clubs again? Not the, not in that way. <laughs> no, I, I mean, ever since that instance, I have taken those clubs out of that case. And if I'm carrying clubs, they're going to be, they are clearly seen as golf clubs. Because uh, I, I never know if someone else, not a police officer necessarily, but someone else might want to take the law into their own hands. Do you have any other questions for each other? I have one for you. Okay. Um, when the day was done and you were off duty and you got home, did you tell anybody about what had happened? Yeah. Told my wife about what happened. And even before I went home, I told a couple of fellow officers about what had happened. And what did they say? Um, you know, they all were supportive of, you know, said that they thought it sounded like I had done a good job. And I kind of talked more about you know, the what ifs, you know, what if you hadn't complied and, you know, dropped the golf clubs, what I thought was a rifle? What if they had gone really poorly and I had shot you and then found out they were golf clubs? I mean, that was something I talked about with one of my really good friends and how terrible that would have been. Well, I thought, what if he had shot me and... I died. <laughs> and I'm thinking that because my father is 101 years old. And I just couldn't imagine him getting that news. Mm -hmm. Do you think for either of you, is there a lesson here that perhaps would benefit, be it the police community, be it the civilian community, the African-American community? I don't know. Are there takeaways? Just, you know, try to be calm. And if a police officer is shouting at you to do something... Maybe that's not the best time to argue. Uh, you know, follow what the officer's telling you first and then sort through it, you know, after. Sort through it. Because I think one element of this is assumption, right? A lot of it was assumed about the situation before you actually knew what was going on with each other. I didn't get to drive there thinking about, okay, what? Am, how am I going to approach this person. I didn't get a drive there with my lights and my sirens on, which gets, you know, the adrenaline up and everything. It was just like, 
oh, hey, right there. You know, I, I guess I guess I should go talk to that person. Because also and, lights and sirens would have scared the person you're going after, too, which yeah, could have made right. me, could right. have gotten me amped up. Yeah, you're right. I mean, if if you're just walking and I, I come, you know, coming up to you with my lights and my sirens on and stop right in front of you or right behind you or something like that, you're right. That would... I would have been a, a lot more afraid. Exactly. Deputy, did Joanne's race ever enter your mind? Only to describe her, meaning the call came in as a black male. So I was looking for a black male. That was the only way it played any, any role in my response was just, who am I looking for? I do wonder if it had been a white person carrying the golf bag, if, if it would have been interpreted any differently. I don't think so. Um, maybe by the person that called, but I don't believe so by me. I believe I would have reacted the same way, just would have been looking for a different person. I was wondering if this changed you in any way. I don't think so. Joanne, did it change you? I don't think so either, except to be grateful that I can have an encounter with a police officer that goes well, even though I did have something I looked threatening. Deputy Finley, Joanne Allen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, Deputy Finley. Thank you, Joanne. Joanne Allen is host of All Things Considered on Colorado Public Radio, and Tom Finley is a deputy with the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office. They talked about their encounter earlier this year. There's a picture of them and of Joanne's golf clubs at CPRnews.org. Coming up, another conversation that generated a big response from listeners this year. It's with the son of gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. Juan Thompson has written his memoir. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As 2016 comes to a close, we are re-airing some of our favorite conversations from the past year. And this next one is about what it's like to have Hunter S. Thompson as a father. Juan Thompson says it's something he's asked a lot. To his fans, Hunter Thompson was a groundbreaking writer, the pioneer of gonzo journalism. To his son, he was a remote figure, an addict with a mean streak. But the love between father and son was always there, even if it wasn't obvious. Juan Thompson, who lives in Denver, has written a memoir about his father and their complicated relationship. It's called Stories I Tell Myself, Growing Up with Hunter S. Thompson. Juan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. You were two years old when you moved to Woody Creek, just outside of Aspen, with your parents, Hunter and Sandy. What are some of your earliest memories? What I remember from that time was snow, lots of snow, and it was very, very tall. You know, it was, I realized, well, that's because I was only like, you know, three feet tall, but this, these, you know, huge drifts and cows and, uh, and just the, 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 op- the open country. It was, uh, it was so great to grow up out there before Aspen was a, uh, retreat, you know, for the rich. It was just, uh, it was it was it was the mountains. It was a country. You had moved from California, so snow is something of a novelty. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, at first, you lived in a rented farmhouse in Woody Creek. That was before your dad bought Owl Farm. 
Woods, yes. sort of famous ranch. Um, do you know if that original house, the farmhouse, is still there? It is. Okay. It is. One more stop, potentially, on a Hunter S. Thompson tour, I suppose. <clears throat> um, uh, potentially. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, 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 but that was really... I mean, it was... Uh, Owl Farm is where he lived for, you know, 34 years. That's That was home. Yeah. You write, by the time my memories really kick in around six or seven, Hunter was a background presence, but not part of my daily life. He seemed to live roughly in parallel with my mother and me without being a part of the family. As a kid, how did you make sense of your father's distance? Well, the thing about this whole story is that, uh, you know, as a as a child, you know, four, five, six, seven, even probably up to around I was a teenager, all I knew was that I didn't have anything to compare it to. So, um, it was just it was just how it was. Uh, that surprises me. In other words, you didn't look at other kids and think, "God, their fathers seem more around." Um, no, and part of that was growing up in you know in Aspen at that time, uh, being isolated a, a bit. Well, and isolated, and it was it was. Uh, uh, I mean, Aspen was a, a strange place. You had the you had the the old time conservative, you know, rancher and farmer. Uh, culture, and then you had these 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 hippies who had come in from the coasts, uh, and it was a, a real sort of clash of cultures. And you had all these people who were determined not to have mainstream lives or raise their families in in, in conventional ways. So there weren't many. I, I can't think of any of the families that I knew at the time where you know someone worked a, a, a nine to five job. And so comparing to normal was a difficult thing to do at That's in right. Aspen at that time. I, I gather that Hunter Thompson's sleeping pattern must have had something to do with these parallel, you know, ships passing in the night kind of lives. Because yes. my understanding is that he was often up all night and asleep most of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think he'd probably been on that schedule for a long time. Um, he would he would get up around four or five in the afternoon. Uh, you know, have breakfast while I was having dinner. And then, um, you know, by, by the time I was going to bed, he was ready to, to, to go out and, you know, see his friends. It was, it was, you know, it was the middle of the day for him. And then he'd, uh, might go to bed around seven or eight in the morning. So it was almost a, you know, our schedules were almost completely flipped. Uh, and I, I think that's just how he was. Was he ever affectionate in passing? Not not that I remember as a child, although when I was uh, writing the book, I found these pictures, you know, from when I was a baby. And uh, and I was really surprised to see, you know, see him holding me. And, I mean, he looked like a really, um, you know, adoring dad. Um, but by the time my memories kicked in, he wasn't, he wasn't like that. And I, I don't think it was because... Uh, you know, he, he didn't love me. It, it just, one of the things I realized about him is that he was, uh, I mean, he was born in the late 30s. You grew up in the, you know, 50s. And he was a, just a different, he was a, you know, old school kind of guy. That idea that children are meant to be seen, not heard kind of thing? No, I think more that fathers are not a part of their children's day-to-day lives. That's, mm. the, you know, the, 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 the mother's job is to raise the children. The father or the fathers make the money and do their own thing. 
You are careful not to call this book a biography of your father. Um, this is, quote, a highly subjective and unreliable <laughs> memoir of how my father and I got to know each other over 41 years until his suicide in 2005. You'd have been too young to remember, but you write that your dad likely brought you at age one to a wild party in California at Ken Kesey's house, the writer and notorious drug user, and that members of the Hell's Angels motorcycle gang were at this party. Your dad had written a book about them. Do you think you were ever actually endangered because of your father? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, in retrospect, uh, uh, it was it was not a good idea to bring a infant to, uh, you know, a blowout party with Ken Kesey and the Hell's Angels, uh, especially given the you know the violence and the you know it was a gang rape that night. I mean, it was a, it, it was a bad idea. Uh, was I actually in danger? Probably not. Um, I was probably in you know some corner of a house somewhere. Um, but that's one of the interesting things about writing the book was looking back and saying, well, you know, um, uh, I would not, I would not make some of those same choices about what I would expose my son to, and yet, um, for some of those things, I I came out, I mean, uh, unharmed. Uh, You're a pretty normal guy. Yeah. I hope you take that well. well yeah, it's, thank it's, you. It's yeah, meant yeah. as a compliment. <laughs> the, the notion that you're a functioning, contributing human being, you, you sometimes look at your background and, and, and are surprised by that? Yeah. Well, one of the, the, the strangest things to write about was uh, uh, the first time I took LSD uh, at 14 with, uh, with my, my mom and her boyfriend. And writing that, uh, at this age, looking back, it, that's a very strange thing. And that's something I would not do with my son. Um, but it was at the time in that culture in Aspen, that was not that was not strange. I mean, parents did drugs with their kids. It was not uncommon. And, you know, did it harm me? No. But would I advocate it? No. <laughs> do you do drugs today? No. No. Does that surprise you that you're not an addict? Your father clearly was. Um <laughs> uh, I am, uh, uh, for whatever reason, whether it's uh, just my nature or in, uh, you know, reaction to I'm not going to be like my dad, you know, in that way. Uh, I just feel very fortunate that I did not get that, get that, that habit or gene. When did you realize that your father, Hunter S. Thompson, had a highly visible professional life as a writer, that he was in effect a celebrity? Probably um, early teens. Uh, I think that was probably around the time of the first the first movie, uh, Where the Buffalo Roam with uh, Bill Murray. And I think that's when it really hit me that, wow, uh, you know, he's not just a, uh, a writer who is, you know, known locally. I mean, they're making a movie about him. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Juan Thompson, son of Hunter S. Thompson, the gonzo journalist. We're speaking about his memoir, Stories I Tell Myself, and we'll continue the discussion after a short break on Colorado Public Radio.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's rejoin my discussion with Juan Thompson. He's written a memoir about his father, Hunter S. Thompson, what it was like to grow up with the gonzo journalist outside of Aspen. Juan today lives in Denver. At around uh, age 10, your parents' marriage begins to fall apart. They fight, usually in the middle of the night. And for a young boy, you write that it's terrifying. And this leads you to despise your father. How, how, how come? It was, he was um, verbally, you know, abusive. I mean, he was, uh, he was loud. He was uh, very insightful about uh, exactly what words to use to cause the most hurt. Going for the jugular. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it wasn't physical violence. It was, uh, uh, he really was trying to, you know, to win, to break, break my mom down. And, and he, and he did that. Uh, and watching him do that was just, it was so, so painful. Uh, and I just came to, to really despise him, uh, for being so deliberately cruel. It strikes me as the flip side of his dexterity with language. That is what made him a brilliant writer, probably made him one of the worst opponents in a fight. Absolutely. Uh, his, uh, his ability as a writer and his, uh, uh, his perceptiveness about, uh, you know, people's character. Your father had a well-known love of guns. And in fact, guns had a lot to do with bringing you and him closer together in the end. Tell us how that was. Um... Sometime, I was probably around 16 or 17, I was going to, uh, once my parents got divorced, I had to make an effort to actually go spend time with them. So I'd uh, go out there, spend the weekend. And then at one point, uh, my dad said, uh, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's clean some guns here. Let me show you how to do this. And that evolved into a ritual, really, that lasted, uh, you know, from that time up until he died. Uh, and I don't know that he intended it this way, but it really became this uh, this kind of bonding ritual where uh, whenever I came up, I, you know, cleaned the guns, and it was, um, uh, it wasn't the cleaning of the guns that was so that was so critical. It was this. It was the bond that was implied as a result. Was it the first thing you had in common? You didn't have hours in common. <laughs> yes, uh, we didn't were have, a kid. We had very little in common. Yeah, uh, uh, I was am uh, a very different kind of person than my dad, and that was, I think that was that might have been one of the one of the starting places that, and uh, you know, uh, we'd sit down and you know watch an old Humphrey Bogart movie and, and clean some guns. And it, it sounds like you came to accept him for who he was. Yes, gradually. Gradually, Gradually. over the course of years. You write about the birth of your son, Will, and how that changed your life, but how it also changed your relationship with your father. And, you know, already in this discussion, you've made real clear distinctions between how you raised Will and how Hunter S. Thompson raised you on. Yes, yes. Uh, I was very clear that I wanted to do it very differently than than my dad had done and. uh, I mean, I'm a very different person, so it wasn't like I was going to, you know, you know, get up at five in the afternoon and go to the bar at nine. But uh, 
I really wanted to be a part of my son's day-to-day life. Uh, that was really important to me. Um, and, uh, and just have more, you know, m- more rules and boundaries than I had. Um, and it was really, it was really great to see how Hunter reacted to Will I mean, when he was a baby. Uh, he would, when he first, you know, met him, he's probably, I don't know, six months old. And he, he put him on his lap and he held him and talked to him. And it was, I was so surprised to see, uh, to see how good he was with a baby. I mean, Hunter Thompson and a baby, you would think, you know, those are two things that do not go together. But he was, uh, he was gentle. He was, uh, he was, uh, attentive. You know, now I certainly wouldn't have asked Hunter to babysit for the evening. You know, that would have pushed his patience, but, but it was really neat to see, uh, how good he was with my son. And reminiscent of those photos that you said that you came across of you on his lap, Hunter mm-hmm. S. Thompson's lap, and your, your own surprise at that. Your father killed himself in 2005. You, your wife, and your son were staying at Owl Farm when that happened. Why, why do you think your father wanted you to be there that weekend? Or, or was, maybe it wasn't quite so thought out. Well, uh, here I, I speculate. He didn't leave a suicide note. He didn't leave any explanation uh, for why he took his life and why he chose that time. So I've, I've sort of made it up. Uh, I think that he wanted me there uh, and uh, my wife and son because uh, he wanted to, you know, to leave uh, – surrounded by by this love and acceptance uh and i think he also wanted me to be there uh, to to deal with the situation you know to deal with his body and the sheriff and and all of that i uh because he trusted me to uh you know to do the right thing so the reasons were both i suppose prosaic and profound at the same time yes yes and you know now i I could be entirely wrong, um, but uh, that's how I that's how I choose to interpret it. And I think it's I think it's more likely than not. Hunter S. Thompson, you write, uh, was in a state where his body was completely failing him at that time, and and he was miserable. He did give you some things before he killed himself, didn't he? He did. Um, uh, the night before he killed himself, or the you know in the morning it was like four in the morning or something, uh, he said, uh, you know, hey, if there's anything, um, uh, you know, family things that that, that you would like, uh, uh, you know, why don't you take those? Uh, so uh, some a little silver jewelry box from his uh, from his mother, uh, some silver julep cups, which was a tradition in, in Kentucky, where he had grown up. Yes, yes, he grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, and. Fortunately, uh, I it did not even occur to me that there was, you know, uh, uh, that this might be uh, uh, significant that he was giving away, asking me to take these things that were so important to him. I see. So you, because it sounds in retrospect like he had informed you he was going to commit suicide. That was not the the consciousness you had. No, thank yeah. God. Yeah. Mm. 
Earlier this year, I interviewed Anita Thompson, your mm-hmm. father's widow, not your mother. And let's be clear. She still lives at Owl Farm, which she has left exactly as it was when your father lived there. And she wants to turn it into a museum. The reason I leave it this way is because it is history. When I've seen, I saw um, Ernest Hemingway's home, Edgar Allan Poe's home, these people are heroes of mine and hunters. It is such a privilege to see the home the way they left it. And I would love for uh, people who loved Hunter's work to have the same experience. And I can provide that. And it's uh, I feel so blessed to have that ability to provide it. Just briefly, how do you feel about opening up Owl Farm as something of a maybe private museum? I don't think I don't think Hunter would have wanted that. Um, I've thought about that quite a bit over the last, you know, many years. And what I really come down to is that uh, did Hunter want to be remembered as a great writer? Absolutely. Um, would he want people wandering around his uh, his home? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, so the idea of having a museum of some kind I think is a good one, uh, but I really don't think that uh, Hunter would have appreciated at all the idea of people being in his house. Do you go to Owl Farm still today? No, I, uh, not any longer, no. Is that a function of your relationship with Anita or – uh, it's owned by a trust, and I was uh, uh, I've been uh, prevented from visiting. Was that a function of your relationship with your father? Uh, with my father, no, no. Uh, I was going there for for several years. Uh, All right. There's more there, but we're out of time. Juan, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Juan Thompson has written Stories I Tell Myself, Growing Up with Hunter S. Thompson. It was one of our most popular interviews of 2016. Well, down to the last minute, 2016 has proven to be a rough year for music lovers. Pop icon George Michael died Christmas Day. Our colleagues at CPR's Open Air pay tribute to legends we have lost on December 30th with a program called Dearly Departed. They enlisted Colorado artists to perform the music of those who passed away this year. For a preview, here is Denver folk band King Cardinal remembering Eagles founder Glenn Fry with a performance of Take It Easy. Save me. We may lose, we may win, though we will never be. 
This is King Cardinal remembering Glenn Fry. For more musical tributes, tune to CPR's Open Air, December 30th at 4 p.m. for Dearly Departed, Colorado Remembers 2016. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for being with us.